0: Hi, this is Henry Gross. You remember me from my big hit, Shannon. And I'm here with Robert Miller on his wonderful Follow Your Dream podcast. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. This world keeps spinning round. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the award-winning Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners all around the world in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Rob Stoner, all-star musician. He played on American Pie, Don McLean's mega hit, one of the biggest and most influential records of the entire rock era. And he's played with Bob Dylan as the band leader and bassist for Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review in 1975, and then again on the far east leg of Dylan's 78 world tour. And he was in Dylan's movie, Ronaldo and Clara. He's worked with artists like Chuck Berry, Joni Mitchell, Robert Gordon, and Link ray Absolutely spectacular. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Rob and I are going to do what I call a song fest. We're going to play a handful of his best works. You're going to hear him talk about them, and nobody else in podcasts does this. And you know, I feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, my featured song is I'm falling off of the world from the album East Side Sessions by my band, Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Okay, follow this one. It turns out that Rob and I have a mutual connection With Eastside Sound, the recording studio that I use. So I thought that a track from Eastside Sessions would work in this context. So, Rob Stoner, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby.
1: Well, thank you for the warm welcome, Mr. Miller. Listen,
0: it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It really is. All right, I want to start off, you know, when I go through these interviews, I like to look at people's backgrounds, and I try to pick stuff out that's a little bit off the beaten path sometimes to start with. So the thing that jumped out at me when I was reading about you was about your father. Oh, yeah. Arthur Rothstein, am I correct? That's right. And he was the photo editor for Look Magazine, am I correct about that?
1: Right. And also, he was the original photographer for Roosevelt's Farm Security Administration, FSA agency, which took all of the famous photographs of black and white photographs you see of the Dust Bowl and the Depression and things during the 1930s. They were hired, my dad and his colleagues, uh, such as Dorothea Lange, Walker Evans, a lot of well-known photographers, were hired to go around the country and document how bad things were during the Depression so that uh, it would influence the people who would see it in the media. Remember, there was only two kinds of media in the 1930s. It was radio and print. Right. So people would look at their newspaper or their magazine and they'd see these pictures of how bad stuff was. And it helped Roosevelt and his acolytes get their legislation through by swaying public opinion. People in the cities had no idea how bad stuff was out in the hinterlands. And so this was the photographic evidence, and uh, you see Stalin and Hitler were d- were doing this photographic propaganda thing to get their agendas across in the 1930s. Also, and so Roosevelt figured he'd better get on the bandwagon with this. So he hired him a bunch of photographers, and my dad was the first guy they hired in 1935 when he was 20 years old. Isn't that incredible? Did he have a background in photography, or how did this all come about? He was the uh, head of his college camera club at Columbia University, and his faculty advisor to the camera club was a guy who eventually ended up being Roosevelt's consultant about getting this agency started, which is how he got hired by the government at age 20. And I'm sure the camera club wasn't using like little Kodak cameras or
0: anything like that. They didn't exist at the time.
1: No, they were using the -the state-of-the-art stuff. Yeah, unbelievable.
0: So he was traveling around the country taking these pictures. You know, as you was talking about it, I'm saying to myself, imagine what it would have been like if social media had existed back then. Oh man, what a huge difference, huh?
1: Yeah. Well, they did the best with what they could, which was just print and radio. <laughs> it's amazing when you think that this happened less than a hundred years ago. Yeah, it is. And then he made the transition to Look Magazine. Is that the case? Yeah, exactly. Well, he got tired of being on the road. Well, actually, he worked for the Farm Security Administration from 1935 until he had to join the Army. And so he joined the Army as a war photographer. So during World War II, he was taking pictures for the Army as a lieutenant. And after that, he worked for the United Nations which wasn't the United Nations then. It was still a bunch of agencies. But before it became the United Nations, he took pictures to uh, document various uh, problems around the world. He was well known as a documentary photographer from what he'd done for Roosevelt and the FSA. So therefore, once he started working for, uh, for these government agencies, he, he received an offer from Look Magazine, which was just starting out, to be the head of their department of photography. So he jumped at the chance because it was a chance for him to get off the road because all of his work involved traveling all the time. So he figured he wanted to settle down in his hometown, New York City, and this magazine job was the ideal way to do it. So he was the director of a staff of photographers that went around the country doing stuff. So he sent other people to do the road work, and he just took the plum gigs for himself and did the work in the Look Studio, which was in Manhattan. Very clever. So he could... Back to his house every day and, you know, have a nice, mellow life instead of traveling all the time. (laughs) He let the other guys do the schlepping. I like that. And so I grew up and ended up being a schlepper going
0: around the road myself. (laughs) All right. We're going to talk about that in a second, but I just want to finish this off. That time, it was basically Look Magazine and Life Magazine. Those were the two big magazines, right? That's right. That was the media. That was your visual (laughs) media until
1: television, right?
0: Unbelievable. Okay, so you got this famous photographer father, and he raises a rock and roll kid. How did this happen?
1: Well, I had an uncle who was a professional musician. That influenced me. And when rock and roll hit in the late 50s, I mean, I was on board with that. I'm 75 now. And I was bitten by that rock and roll bug, and I immediately started taking guitar lessons. All right, hold on. Who was the first one that bit you? What artist? Uh, I, I guess Presley was, was the first guy. Okay. But actually, before Presley, I was into uh, Fats Domino and Little Richard, even though they were piano players, because I was a piano player too. All right. But you know, guys like that, they weren't being played on the radio. So how did you discover them? Uh, actually, the, there was a black radio station, WBLS in, in New York, that you could listen to. The Jocko's Rocket Ship Show, <laughs> all the way over on the right side of the AM dial. You could get black music anywhere if you if you looked for it. And New York's a cultural center. I grew up in New York City, so I was hip to all this stuff. And, you know, I had friends who who turned me on to it. And then Chuck Berry. So all the early cats, I dug them all. And it, it influenced me a lot. And uh, I started a band, and I saw that I could make money doing this. And back before the Beatles, no white kids had bands, virtually none of them. And so for like a few years there, there was a window when we had the market all to ourselves. People wanted to hear live music because nothing sounded as good as a live band. So, so therefore, or as loud as a live band, which was good for dancing. Where were you playing? What kind of places? Oh, all kinds of places, man. High school dances, uh, social events. Country clubs, concerts. There was like a zillion job bars. If you had fake idea, you could play bars. There was a huge market and demand for teenage music at the time, and very few teenagers to play it. After the Beatles came along, a lot of kids jumped on the bandwagon and started bands. But before that, we had the whole thing to ourselves for years. So I was making good money. So once I saw I could make money doing this, man. I was off to the races. Also, also, I found out that I can make extra money by learning standards like Sinatra tunes, that kind of thing, uh-huh. to sit in with older bands, like wedding bands. They would hire me. I joined the union and I got hired to be the kid who would be in these older guys' wedding bands who would come along on the last set of the evening and sing the hits of the day.
0: The rock and roll comes out. Exactly. You know, it's interesting you say that because my father played the trumpet and he played exactly what you were just talking about weddings bar mitzvahs parties things like that and he got me in i was i'm a little bit younger than you but i got in you know because they had to play as part of the overall amount of music that they play they had to play some rock and roll that's right None of these guys knew any rock and roll so i got in at the tail end just like you're saying all right now we're
1: gonna have the kid play some rock and roll yeah right And by then, it's the end of the night, and all the guests at the event have all been drinking.
0: That's right.
1: So it was the best time to come on and play, because everybody's in such a great mood, and they just want to dance. How much did you get paid for your first gig? Uh, I think it was $25. Wow. That's pretty good. I was like 12, man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) First gig I ever played was for a Boy Scout luncheon, and we got paid in cheeseburgers. Wow, that's a good gig. Cheeseburgers—that was it. Anyway, so you've you've come very very far from this kind of a beginning. Tell me about Don McLean. I mean, you're playing on American Pie, which is just a monster song. How did this all develop?
1: Well, he had a producer, Ed Freeman. The guy's still around, great record producer. And Ed Freeman was a producer of folk music. In fact, he produced a Tim Hardin album that I played on. And Pete Seeger, all these folk things that I had work on playing as a session guy when I was in my early 20s. And uh, McLean was one of the guys who hired him to be his producer. So it was the producer who called me for the gig. And I'd never met McLean. We just uh, sat down, played. He, he liked my playing and uh, showed me his material. We went in the studio and did his first album, Tapestry, which was before American Pie, And uh, they were satisfied with my work. And I did his next bunch of albums, including American Pie. All right. Just describe the
0: session. Because, you know, this is an iconic song, okay? Tell me what your recollections
1: are of that session. Well, it was a three-hour session. And um, as I said, I had played previously at a rehearsal with uh, McLean and our drummer, Roy Markowitz. And when we got to the session, the uh, fabulous... Session guy Paul Griffin showed up to do the keyboard parts. He didn't show up till we were already doing it. It was it was three hours, and we we got the whole thing done live. And uh, let's see, Roy Marker, which was the drummer. He uh, used to play with Janis Joplin. David Spinoza was the guitar player, and I'm the bass player. And the guy singing the high harmony every time the the chorus comes around, ba ba, you'll hear there's another guy singing ba ba, and that's me singing the high part. Uh huh. Every time a chorus comes around, just me and McLean. And uh, at the time, uh, we didn't think it would be a hit because uh, the thing was too long and verbose. And also there were tempo changes. It starts out slow, then it gets fast in the middle, then it gets slow again. Yeah, Pop records don't do that, and they're not eight minutes long. So therefore, it had everything going against it for being a radio hit. So we were all surprised when it became a hit. So when you were recording it, I guess
0: nobody knew it was going to... You never know it's going to explode like that. No, you
1: never know when you do a record.
0: All right. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, because we're talking about American Pie. Normally, I would wait until the Songfest portion to play it, but we're Hmm. playing a little bit now. And this is the part of the record
1: that you requested that I play. So describe what we're hearing now. Okay, starting with a chorus where I'm singing. So it's it's first McLean and, my, and myself. It's a duet. Bye, bye is my part, and his, his is bye, bye. And so there's the two vocal parts. And uh, I'm thumping along. It's a very small band. It's just guitar, bass, and drums, <laughs> really, and piano. So it's a whole lot of room for them to goose the bass up loud in the mix, so the bass is kind of prominent in it. So, yeah, let's listen to that.
2: You both kicked off your shoes
0: So, in other words, this was done as a three-hour session. Yeah. That was it. And was this the only song in that
1: session, or was there more that was recorded then? No, we just did that one song. I mean, we did the rest of the album later in the week. But that song, American Pie, was, I think, the first tune we did, and we did it in three hours.
0: You know, the crazy thing is, I've had a lot of guys on the show from the era that we're talking about particularly the wrecking crew kind of era where the guys would go in for a session and it would be like a three hour session. That's it. Everybody's on the clock and you got to get the song or songs done within that time frame. Yeah, that's right. And of course, the world changed tremendously and people took days and weeks and months to put stuff together later. But that era you're describing was still that three hour era.
1: Yeah. Well, it was more like the Hollywood studio system, You know, an efficient way of dividing the labor. When the Beatles came along, it it created this sort of model, business model, for self-contained bands where everybody played, sang, wrote all the songs themselves. Before that, you had one bunch of people who wrote the song, another bunch of people who performed the song, and then the guys who played on the backing track, like the Wrecking Crew whatever, were a, a separate group too. And so because you had all these different de- everybody doing what they were specialized in, you got a better result and could stamp out stuff with more efficiency.
0: Well, they certainly did a lot of stuff back then. I mean, some of the guys from the wrecking crew went from one session to another to another. Yeah, right. They were doing, you know, 5-6 different sessions a day. Unbelievable. We we had a New York version of that bunch of people. It's a different world. Okay, so I just got to follow through on this. Okay, you recorded American Pie, and like you said, it's eight minutes long. It's got tempo changes. It's a completely different song than anything else that you're going to hear on the radio at that time. Yeah. Tell me what happened. Did it just explode? Did it take a while to get to that level? Tell me what happened.
1: Well, when a guy comes into the studio to do a song... He's usually just got a couple of chords and he's strumming. It's a very simple thing, especially a singer-songwriter, folky-type guy like McLean. And so it's very bare bones. So it's up to the guys at the session to come up with parts that are essentially a head arrangement, Right. something that they they were doing in Nashville at the time, and Wrecking Crew had been doing that for years. And we did the same thing in New York. Our job was to embellish the song, whatever the song was, and try and make it successful, which means adding our own creative touches to it, our own intellectual property. And although our ideas are not gonna be compensated, at least we'll we'll get a reputation for being creative and get called back for future work. So our job is to embellish the guy's song and add a lot of stuff to it that wasn't there previously.
0: Okay, so I'm saying you did it, you created this magnificent song. What was the aftermath? Did you have anything to do with the immediate aftermath of that song? How it went to the top of the charts?
1: No, well, I was I was mystified as it sort of climbed the charts. I didn't think it was going to be (laughs) I was pleasantly surprised. And then I got all these gold records to put on my wall for it.
0: Oh man, that's what makes life interesting, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: All right. You played with another monster artist, and I'm talking about Dylan, of course. Tell us about the background there. How'd you get to him? And describe what went on there.
1: Well, as, as I said, from working with McLean, I'd, I'd worked with a lot of different folk singers, many folk artists. And uh, while working with all these various folk artists, I met Bob Dylan, who was a mutual friend of a lot of the people who were on the folk scene at the time. Uh, Bob Dylan and I hit it off when we met and we hung out and jammed the first night we met. He came to see a show of a guy I worked for named John Harold, who had this group called the Greenbrier Boys, that Bob Dylan used to be the opening act for <laughs> in the uh, late 50s. So he he came to see his, his old uh, old friend to see how he was doing. And there I was in the guy's band. So we ended up hanging out. And he said, I'm going to call you for something someday. And he took my number. And I thought, yeah, sure. You know, because people always say that. Now, was was he Dylan at that time? In other words, had he- Oh, he was huge, man.
0: He was. Okay. So what time frame are we talking about?
1: We're talking early 70s, like 71, 72. All right. So he takes your number, and at some point, I assume he calls you. Yeah. So eventually, he stopped working with the band, who were his backup group. Uh, they didn't want to work with him anymore. So he was looking around for a new group. So he looked through his Rolodex of all the musicians he'd met, and he thought about, you yeah, who know, who would I like to try out? And I was one of the guys he called. And what happened then? He called me up to play on an album, not to do a job or anything, but not not to play a live gig. But he didn't have anything, any gigs booked. But he did have an album to do. The album was called Desire, and he'd been trying to record it with the various groups of New York musicians for weeks and not getting any good results. So he he just, he phoned me up out of the blue and said, hey, I want you to come to the studio and see what's going on with this album. It doesn't seem to be happening. So I showed up and um, it was a, a really bad scene. There were just too many people in the studio all jamming. It was out of control. The producer was not in charge of the session. So Dylan said, what, what should I do? If this was your record, what would you do? I said, I'd send everybody home Let's all go home right now. Come back fresh tomorrow and start this all over again with just a small group. And he said, well, who would you use? Now, I had a band, uh, which was a bar band that played all over New York. Rock and Rob Stoner was the name of the band. And the drummer in my band, Howie Wyeth, was somebody who I had a really good symbiosis. You're a bass player with this drummer. And uh, we we played on a bunch of sessions for other artists. And I, I knew that Wyeth would blow Dylan away once he heard him. So he just trusted me to bring my drummer from my band, which I did. So Wyeth and I sat down the next night with Dylan and just started playing. And Dylan, I could see him smiling. He dug it. And he looked at me and said, yeah, your drummer's great, man. This is going to work out. So we just started recording. We did the whole album in one night. Wow. We had a violinist who I kept over from the other sessions. I said, you should keep her, uh, Scarlett Rivera. And um, so the whole band was just Dylan, Scarlett Rivera, myself, and Howie Wyeth. And we did uh, 10 songs in one night.
0: <laughs> That's the old-fashioned way. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. All right, so tell us about the uh, the review that you were on, and how did that go? And how did that come about, The Rolling Thunder?
1: yeah, well, after we did the album, I mean, you, you know you you finish a project with somebody, you never know if you'll hear from them again. If you do, it's a pleasant surprise. So I had no idea if he'd ever want to work with me. I knew we got a good result, but uh, I didn't know what he had planned for his live gigs. So I was surprised about a month later, he called the same people who were on the recording. The other two people, Scarlett and myself, and had us to go and do a live TV show in Chicago, a tribute to John Hammond, uh, which was our first live appearance with Bob Dylan. No rehearsal, no nothing. We just showed up in Chicago, cold, and did it. And Benny Goodman was on the show. All these people that John Hammond had had discovered. I played on a show with Benny Goodman, man. You believe that? father would have been proud of you. Yeah, he would have been. (laughs) My mother, too. Yeah. So there we were. Uh, doing a gig, so so we passed the the audition for being his live band. All right, hold on. I, I want
0: to understand the scene here. You're going out to Chicago. You're on a TV show. You had no rehearsal. I
1: know it's insane. Did you know what the songs were you're going to play? He told us two of them were ones we'd done on the that we just done on the album, so I already knew them. But the other one was one I didn't know. I mean, I'd heard it on the radio. It was <laughs> Simple Twist of Fate, so I kind of knew how it went. And man, if I hear something, I know it. Right, that's what a pro like you know that man. What's a pro musician does? You play it for me once, or if I've heard it, I can play it. So it was. We just did a cold, and I like those kind of those kind of challenges. You know, that's what jazz cats do. They don't tell you in advance. They just want to see if if you're good enough to cut it on stage with me. You should be able to play any tune without me counting it off, telling you the key, or even telling you what the hell it is. Five start plan, you start plan, and don't make a mistake.
0: Exactly right. You know, just a little vignette. I had Ron Carter, the maestro, the wonderful bass player on the podcast. What a genius. And he told me a story about how when he was starting out, he got a call to substitute to back up Thelonious Monk in the village. And he went down there and Monk said to him, do you know all my music? And he said, well, I think I know most of it. He says, well, we'll find out tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I understand completely. All right.
1: So get me to the tour. I want to hear about all of that. All right. So uh, having passed muster with the small group, I knew the guys in the band, Levon and Robbie and Rick and all those cats. And they had told me that Dylan had always been talking about having a traveling carnival show that would go from town to town and show up unannounced, just like the circus and uh, and hit and split. And it turns out that he this was what he was planning for his next move after the band stopped working with him. He wanted to have a traveling variety show, a review, if you will. So what he decided to do was to get a bunch of old folk stars from the 60s, such as Joan Baez, Ramblin, Jack Elliott, Roger McGuinn, and uh, have have a variety show. And it would be a a four-hour extravaganza with an intermission, and this, this way, he, he wouldn't have to sing the whole show. He'd just come out as like the big act at the end, at the end of each half. So, so he, he called me up and said, I want you to do this project with me. And I want you to, to be the musician wrangler. So you, you know that, uh, according to the union, leaders get double scale. Right. Right. So I said, well, that makes me the leader, right? He said, yeah, double scale. <laughs> so, so, so I was getting paid double scale so this is pretty cool man so so we started rehearsing at, at SIR studios and all these like folk stars started dro- dropping by to jam and uh some of them ended up on the tour and some didn't but it was uh a, a, a traveling circus and it, it uh it caught the imagination of the press and we played a lot of small places like college gyms and prisons and we we played a few big places to pay the bills, but basically the place played small downtown theaters. It was a, f- a phenomenal experience, and it was a, a long variety show every night. Totally different, for sure. Tell me, what was the whole deal with the white face thing that he did, that Dylan did? Oh, that's part of the circus deal. You know, like I told you, it was like a traveling circus type thing. I see. So he was trying to be like a, a, putting on circus clown makeup like that. Also, it was, it was a nod to the French impressionistic films of, of mid-century where people would wear this- like Marcel
0: Marceau, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, or that kind of thing, right. So it, w- it was a nod to that. And also, it's, he's always had this thing about masks. In fact, he has a film called Masked and Anonymous, which I think is his best film. And um, he looked at it as a mask.
0: He's Dylan. He can do whatever he wants, right?
1: He can do whatever he wants, yeah. He wants to
0: keep people guessing. I can imagine. All right. I just got one other question about this. I know you worked with him later on the Far East leg of that other tour.
1: Yeah, we did another Rolling Thunder tour in 76, too. Lucky you. We did two of them, yeah. Unbelievable. Have you worked with him since? Uh, on a few projects, but uh, n- nothing much to speak n- Not on stage. I mean, I did some editing and stuff of, of things that we did together.
0: He's been around a long time. I give him credit for that, for sure. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. You know, one of the many benefits to me of doing this podcast is being able to collaborate musically with some of my guests who are among the best musicians in the world. My first collaboration was with the great Jim Peterick of the Ides of March and formerly with Survivor. Jim and I collaborated on The Fall of Winter, a song about a blue collar worker who dreams of a better life. Also contributing was Elliot Randall, the renowned guitarist. John Helliwell was the amazing saxophonist in Supertramp, one of the greatest bands of the rock era. John collaborated with me on my 2023 album, Bobby M and the Paisley Parade, and he's featured on several tracks. One of them is This Time. Tony Carey is a singer-songwriter and keyboard genius who played with Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Tony has collaborated with me on several recordings including his exquisite organ playing on all of the time.
2: all all.
0: And I'm finishing up a new collaboration right now with trumpeter Randy Brecker, formerly with Blood Sweat and Tears. Collaborations like these make the podcast very special indeed. As always, thank you for listening. Keep on rocking. All right, let's go to the Songfest portion before we uh, use up all of our time. And right now we're playing a song that you did with Dylan called Abandoned Love. My
2: heart is down.
1: me about that. Okay. So this is uh, Dylan and myself singing a duet at the beginning of the song. He's singing, my heart is telling me, I'm singing, my heart is telling me. I'm singing the harmony part, the higher part. Right. And uh, it's a song which we recorded for the Desire sessions. I was telling you we did 10 songs in one night. The next night we did more and the night before we had gotten one. So therefore there were about 15 songs in the can and they only put nine on the album. So therefore this is one of those outtake songs that eventually appeared as a B side or a, you know, a special added track on a CD or something. So this one was not released on the desire sessions, although it was recorded on the desire sessions. And it's the only one that has me singing harmony instead of Lou Harris, because it was a night that Lou Harris had previous commitments. So she couldn't show up. So Emmy Lou Harris was singing Harmony on the album, but because she was had she had a big career going at the time, she couldn't uh, make but one night. And when we went on the road with Rolling Thunder, we were doing all these songs that she'd sung Harmony on, but she wasn't around because you know she was out doing her own gigs. So I sang those parts. You were Emmy Lou Harris, huh? I I did Emmy Lou Harris's vocal parts for the desire album on all the live gigs. And people listen to these tracks, man, the the live tracks, and say, "I didn't know Emmy Lou was on that tour." It's not Emmy Lou, man. It's me <laughs> singing her parts. It's Emmy Lou Stoner. <laughs> there you go, man. All right, that sounds
0: great. And this that track came out on the Biograph album, didn't it?
1: That's right. That was the first time it was released. Okay. There, there, there was a, another one called Rita May, which was a B side. There were uh, a, a whole bunch of them, man, was stuff they didn't use. Wow. Okay. So let's go to the next one.
0: This is one of your songs, Let Daddy Drive.
1: It's such a
2: long ride, but not so far. With you by my
1: side, let daddy drive.
2: Before midnight.
1: Tell us about this one. Okay, so this is from one of my solo albums as a singer-songwriter. It's uh, It was co-written with uh, our mutual friend, Henry Gross, who did Shannon Has Gone, I Know. Right. And uh, it's uh, it was a song that got a lot of airplay when it came out at the time in 1980. Uh, so I, I did this album of my own songs for uh, for mca records and it got a lot of airplay and uh it boosted my solo career for a while usually i've made most of my living working as a backup guy for other people and you know doing doing uh backup work it's kind of a trap because you get a reputation for being a side man as opposed to a front man but for a while when my own solo albums were out i had a reputation as a front man but what people remember me for now is all these like mega hits that i played on backing people up obviously it's you know money talks they remember the stuff that was a big hit my stuff wasn't big hits but like this is one of them and it should have been a damn hit because it's really good has Howie Wyeth on drums and a guitar solo that I copied from Chris Spedding who I worked with in Robert Gordon's band for many years and that's what it is. Let Daddy Drive.
0: As long as people remember you, it almost doesn't make a difference why. <laughs> yeah, right. Just keep that in mind. And was this the one, you had this great picture on one of your albums, but you with that big pompadour kind of hair thing yeah, going Yeah, on. that was
1: my rockabilly <laughs> look. At the <laughs> time, I was working for Link Ray and Robert Gordon, uh-huh. and they had that kind of rockabilly look and and that image. So I figured because I was known for being in those circles, I would capitalize on it with that look. And also that look is also a vestige of the time that I spent as a country artist in the early 70s. My first solo gig, I mean, solo recording contract was as a country singer in uh, 1973 on Epic Records. And I released some singles at the time and uh, they got some fair airplay. There were songs I wrote as well. And that is not only a rockabilly look, but it's a stone country look. (laughs) So that's what I was going for.
0: All right. Well, speaking of rockabilly and speaking of uh, Gordon and Link Ray, the last song we got going here is Red Hot.
2: My gal is red hot. Your gal ain't doodly squat. Yeah.
1: Tell us about that one. Oh, my God. What a great song. The great Link Ray, recently inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Better Late Than Never. Yeah. And uh, the late, great uh, Howie Wyeth on drums and the late, great Robert Gordon on vocals. This song got a lot of airplay. It was side one, cut one of uh, our first album, which was called Robert Gordon and Link Ray, uh, which uh, made a lot of noise. And we uh, we toured... Off of that album until uh, Robert died, basically, a couple of years ago. That always
0: stops the tour. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, listen, you had quite a career, really quite a career. We have been speaking here with Rob Stoner. Just fascinating from what you said about your father and what he did. And then you and uh, all the artists that you've worked with, from Don McLean to Bob Dylan to Link Ray to Robert Gordon. Just fantastic. And you had that pompadour look going on back in the day and the country music thing. Yeah, bro. Love it, baby. Thanks. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. I really, really enjoyed it.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. And we're going to listen
0: now to that song of mine that started off the podcast. It's called I'm Falling Off of the World. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at Robert
1: at And you can hear more from his band at ProjectGrandSlam.com.